Welcome to another edition of Modern Law Library. I'm your host, John Malisak. My guest today is Anton Piotrgorski, the author of The Iron Bridge, a collection of short stories about 20th century dictators as teenagers, as well as various opera libretti and plays, including Breath in Between, which just opened in Toronto. Anton is the author of Altunzi, his debut novel, which was just published by Anchorwick Books. Altunzi tells the behind-the-scenes story of U.S. Supreme Court justices as they consider a landmark case involving the rights of detainees held in a Guantanamo Bay-like overseas military base at the tail end of the last decade. It explores in detail how the personal dramas, career rivalries, and political sympathies of these legal titans blend with their philosophies to create the most important legal decisions of our time. The reviews for the novel have been very positive, uh, including one from Erwin Chemerinsky, who says, quote, Altunzi is a powerful reminder that justices are human and that, as much as the law, determines how important cases are decided. This is an important point that I want to get to a little bit later. Welcome, Anton. Hello. Thank you. So let's start. Um, I want to ask you, as you were writing this novel, did you have any inkling at the time of its publication that the U.S. would find itself in the throes of, of one of the most tumultuous political periods in its modern history? Uh, no, certainly not. Um, I really began working or thinking about the novel uh, back at the very end of the Bush uh, administration. And so when President Obama was elected, I kind of felt like, in particular, the the questions that the novel dealt with around habeas corpus as it relates to non-citizens was going to be a more or less solved question for the foreseeable future. And um, I certainly didn't expect, uh, along with a lot of people, this level of political trauma and uh, tumult in the United States or how that would relate to those questions in particular, which are now suddenly rising again in the Trump administration. So tell us a little bit about the case around which the novel is centered. As you referenced, you know, the circumstances really sort of herald back to uh, the, the George W. Bush administration and some of his battles with the Supreme Court over Guantanamo, correct? Yeah, there was a string of cases around the detainee rights in Guantanamo Bay that resulted in a final case, Boumediene versus Bush, which was decided in 2008. Um, it's very widely regarded as one of uh, one of the most important cases on um, uh, habeas corpus and detainee rights and presidential power um, that's happened in the court in many many years. And those questions all the the series of cases all revolved around what rights do non citizen detainees have, what access to U.S. courts do they have in periods of conflict, and the you know as many people know Guantanamo was structured in such a way to avoid the people who were brought there having any uh, access to the courts. They were non-citizens who were taken in various uh, levels of combat, and depending on how you find, define combat, and brought to a naval base that is leased by Cuba. So it was argued that it was not sovereign U.S. territory, and therefore they had no access to the courts through habeas corpus. In this series of cases, that was challenged at various levels. In the final case, Boumediene versus Bush, well, the final in the sense of this main question, um, asked whether or not they, these people had a constitutional right as opposed to a statutory right to habeas corpus. And it was decided uh, in a kind of complicated way that, yes, they did have those rights. So I use those cases and the details of those cases as really the basis for all sorts of different kinds of explorations in my novel, including legal explorations. 
Well, I think one of the things that's really fascinating, as I read this novel and, um, you know, knowing somewhat about your background, you're not a lawyer. And I found one of the things that was so impressive um, about what you've done in Altunzi is that you really depict the justices in such a, a convincing, powerful way. Your descriptions of the various uh, internal processes at the Supreme Court read like, frankly, they were written by someone with real insight or knowledge. So what degree, given that you don't have a legal background, what, what degree of research did you conduct to make this world that is really so closed off to so many people outside of the legal profession? You know, what degree of research did you do to make this so utterly compelling, but also so completely convincing? Well, thank you. I did a, uh, a lot of research. I read, of course, an extraordinary amount about the history of the court. I read quite a few cases, um, opinions, dissents, biographies, law review articles, all sorts of things that were relevant. Um, I also managed to interview um, quite a few people, um, including some former clerks who uh, were helpful, a number of lawyers who have argued at the court. Uh, I visited the court on a couple of occasions myself. But my greatest resource was, in fact, a very close friend of mine who is a Canadian named David Sandomierski, um, who clerked for the Chief Justice of the Canadian Supreme Court. And um, he, having worked in an analogous court, was able to just kind of explain to me a lot of the things that happen, how they happen, and gave me a lot of insight into it. And in addition to all of that uh, research, probably the most important thing for me to remember was is that everybody involved in the court is still just a person, uh, from the most famous and erudite justice to the uh, the guards working there, they're all people just like me and you. And so to a certain extent, everything that they're going through, everything that they're imagining and doing is um, is accessible to us just through empathy and through knowledge that it's people who are who are living this and making those decisions. And that really, what you just said, ties back into Chemerinsky's quote. You know, it's so easy to look upon these these justices as being these larger than life figures, these you know hallowed figures within uh, the halls of justice, and really sort of lose track of the fact that they are human beings like like you, like me, despite their you know exalted position. And what I really enjoyed about this novel also is how you have drafted very specific, sort of personal backstories, personal histories for each one of these justices and show how, as this Altunzi case is, is going through the court, how each of them come at it from a, a different perspective or a different set of biases or life experiences that really ultimately influences how they end up ruling on the case. You know, for example, one of the, the, the central characters, if perhaps not the most central character of this novel, is Justice Rodney Sykes. He opens the novel, uh, and then it's his opinion at the end that really sort of provides the novel its its critical and dramatic denouement. So I'm kind of curious, without going into too much detail, because we don't want to give away some of the wonderful intricacies of the novel, but I was wondering if you could share with us, you know, some highlights from the personal lives of these these judges that you've created and how their uh, experiences may or or may not have influenced uh, their legal decisions here. Absolutely. Well, there's so many ways I could uh, approach that question. There's some general things that I'd like to say, maybe I'll just come back to in a little while, about the relationship between personal lives and legal opinions, um, because it's such a controversial issue. But first, to the second part, um, about these particular people, 
there are so many ways in which I think that influence happens. And it's very, very complicated. It's not, I don't think it's really a question of being, you know, left of center or right of center or having beliefs and opinions. It infiltrates down to your methodologies, your whole way of thinking, your whole way of living your, your life personally. So Justice Sykes, for example, is a very strict person with himself in many, many ways. Uh, he's very formal. Um, he comes from an impoverished background and has really kind of uh, pulled himself up in the bootstrap, you know, way of thinking about things. But he's very formal. He has a great deal of respect for the law. And he really tries very hard not to introduce himself in any meaningful way in the law. He's very reluctant to have any opinions that are personal himself. Now, that affects his personal lives in all sorts of ways. Uh, and it ends up kind of bumping up against his um, background and his history as an African-American man in the United States, um, where for so long, pure respect for the law meant bumping into the reality of being an African-American man, in which the law denied you all sorts of status as a human being. And so I think that there is a contra- there are those kinds of contradictions that arise in every person's history, where you can have a set of beliefs or set of systems that comes into conflict with your personal history and background. And there's no way around those things not influencing you or affecting you or ultimately changing or forming your sense of law. So that's one of the cases for um, Justice Sykes. Another fictional justice is uh, Killian Quinn, who is a, an Irish Catholic justice, um, full of life, full of love and passion, and yet comes from a very conservative background, both socially and politically. And those kinds of conflicts are playing out in his life in all sorts of ways. So the more you kind of explore personal backgrounds, it, it, instead of it just setting what your belief system is, it makes it more complicated and nuanced. And that really sort of ties into my next question also. Um, you know, one of the things that really struck me about, you know, each one of these fictional justices is that there's so much intellectual debate the characters engage in amongst themselves, both within the halls of justice, but also with their family and their close friends in the outside world. Uh, you know, each of these justices seem, to me anyway, at least much more at ease debating legal precedent, for example, with their colleagues, then connecting to each other or to the world around them uh, on a more personal level. And that sort of push-pull dynamic between their lives as Supreme Court justices and their lives as husbands, as lovers, as fathers, um, what have you, it seems to be one of the real central tensions of the novel. You know, can you comment on this at all? What do you think this says about the life of a Supreme Court justice? Well, um, I don't necessarily look at that as a negative thing. I mean, when, when you look at what I imagine are the lives of Supreme Court justices, is that they spend a great deal of time thinking about the law and uh, acting and working on the law. And that's a good thing. And I think that so often in novels, we are conditioned to thinking that the intellectual life of a person or a character is separate from their personal life. And their personal life is really where the story is. It certainly happens all the time in plays and fiction and all sorts of things. But for so many people, especially people who, whose entire life is revolving around these complicated ideas, these complicated ideas, whether they're legal or whatever, are completely intertwined in their lives in meaningful ways. 
So the fact that these would be the subjects of conversation in their homes, that it would occupy their thoughts all the time, seems entirely consistent to me with people who are working that hard and who are doing such interesting work. So I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I just think that it's a source of um, intrigue. I don't see how you could write a meaningful book about a Supreme Court justice without discussing the law. That's what they're thinking about. That's what they're good at. And it's going to affect every aspect of their lives in a meaningful way. And what's far more interesting to me is the overlap, is how, you know, your opinions about, you know, some tort case are going to actually affect your dinner. It's not what you would think or expect, but it's got to, your mind, people's minds go back and forth between things all the time. And I think that's a source of great strength and interest as opposed to something that we should be afraid of or even say cynically that that's a bad thing. And it's that it's that dynamic that I think really propels some of the most powerful and, and passionate sequences in the novel. And it's a real credit to you, Anton, also, you know, as a playwright, certainly, that the dialogue throughout this novel and some of the intellectual discourse uh, really just it's it sparkles. And, uh, you know, you can really hear it in your head as you're reading, but also in a way listening to these very human people debating and discussing. I want to get onto another question about the quote from Lord Atkin that begins the novel. Who then in law is my neighbor? Why did you choose this specific quote to kick the story off? Well, um, you know, that, as I'm sure many people, um, at least many lawyers know, is from a very famous case, uh, British case, Donahue versus Stevenson, the 1932 judgment that um, really was about the question of duty of care. Uh, it's kind of called one of the most famous cases in, in common law. And I was particularly interested in that question because it points to a problem that I think is at the heart of American law, which is that we have a system that's based on enlightenment principles of individual rights and individual freedoms. And those make all sorts of assumptions about what a person is, what responsibilities does a person have. In that particular case, Lord Atkin says that, um, you know, essentially the duty to love your neighbor, um, the religious duty to love your neighbor, turns into a duty to not hurt your neighbor. And that points to a fundamental contradiction in, uh, or not a contradiction, but a problem in law, whereas if you have individuals who are free and who are autonomous, what responsibility do they really have to another person? And where does that draw the line? And I think that's the kind of question in law that I wanted to ask and wanted to point to. I think it becomes a, it starts to blend with a philosophical question about who does the law say we are as people? What is a person in law? And what kind of rights and responsibilities does a person have in law? Um, and you get into situations which are, in fact, exactly what I think happened in the Boumediene case, where you have a conflict where your human decency comes into conflict with the law. And, you know, to a large extent, by excluding a certain class of people um, from rights to a court, uh, especially with an idea like habeas corpus, which literally means bring your body into the court. If certain people are excluded, their body is not allowed to be brought into the court. The question really starts to resonate on a political level, on a legal level, and also on a moral and philosophical level. Who are we as people? Who do we want to be as people? And what are our legal responsibilities toward it? I felt like that was all tied up in that one quote. So for me, the quote opens into um, into all those questions, into legal, into strictly legal questions, into philosophical questions, and into ethical, moral, and personal questions. 
Thank you. Um, I could say a lot more about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's also, I think it's one of the the beauties of the novel as well, is that it really, unlike a lot of uh, legal fiction that I've read, um, or just fiction in general lately, it does invite the reader to really discuss the book and to really consider the moral and the legal questions that it raises. Um, I think that this uh, would be a fantastic choice for a, for a book club group, for example, because I think that, you know, these questions really sort of lend themselves to strong debate depending on, you know, what your background is or what your political beliefs, et cetera. So, you know, that's something for readers to, to definitely keep in mind. I know that there is a passage that you have selected, Anton, from the novel that you'd like to share with our our listeners today. Uh, We have a few minutes. So um, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of background on, you know, the passage, where it comes from in the novel, what sort of the background of it, and uh, let's take a listen. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to read a section from um, a long chapter on Justice Killian Quinn, who is a um, conservative Irish Catholic justice who loves Shakespeare. He's absolutely crazy about Shakespeare. And so one of the things he likes to do on his break from the Supreme Court is sneak over to the Folger Shakespeare Library, which is just uh, about a 30-second walk from the Supreme Court building, and take out old volumes of uh, Shakespeare plays and read them. So I'm going to read a section from when he takes out one of the volumes of the plays. And uh, it's uh, also a really clear example of how personal lives, personal interests, starts to overlap with legal thinking. So I'm going to begin at when he has the book and is sitting down and starting to read it. Killian rubbed his fingertips over the smooth cover of this beloved edition of Shakespeare's work, published at Oxford in 1770. He was fond of its decorative features, the spray motif and raised band along the book's spine, the silken green and white headband and smooth gilt edges, the gold-tooled image of Shakespeare, leaning against a tower of books that was impressed into its crimson calf leather cover. But his main reason for choosing the Oxford edition instead of some other was historical rather than decorative, its date of publication. Nothing like sitting here in the old reading room, turning these fragile pages, imagining that James Madison owned a copy of the same six-volume set in his own personal library. Madison himself, sitting at his desk in his Montpellier estate, fire roaring, candles lit, perusing these pages. It was impossible to conceive of anything like that happening when you were reading a paperback Shakespeare in private chambers, or, worse still, a digital version on a computer screen or e-reader. Killian opened the volume to the first play, Time and of Athens, and skimmed the archaic text, the S's printed into elongated F's. Although he loved the entire play, he was not in the mood for the first three acts of Timon, which detail the protagonist's generosity to his fellow Athenians and the meaty drama of his downfall. Timon's loss of fortune and subsequent discovery that his so-called friends are fickle and cruel. Instead, he flipped to the last two acts, when Timon has retreated into the wilderness as a hermit and misanthrope, unwashed and feral, and berates anyone who visits him. Who dares, who dares, in purity of manhood, stand upright and say this man's a flatterer? If one be, so are they all, for every breeze of fortune is smoothed by that below. The learned pate ducks to the golden fool, all's obloquy. There's nothing level in our cursed natures but direct villainy. Oh yes, railing against humanity was the right stuff for today. Killian felt like standing on his chair and shouting on men across the mock Elizabethan reading room. 
the vast majority of people in the world really were fools at best, villains at worst. And even the wisest among them would happily defer to an idiot if he might get rich in doing so. Justice Quinn's long experience with the law had exposed him to countless cases of greedy plaintiffs and negligent defendants, prodigal children and wicked parents, narcissists, egomaniacs, outright cutthroats. The world was packed full of evil human beings, billions and billions of them, driven by devilish instincts, fallen nature's original sin. Brother turned against brother, friend murdered friend, collaborator stole from collaborator, and together they lied to their investors. People were bad, pretty much without exception. The majesty of the law, especially American constitutional law, was rooted in its mechanism for balancing one group's dark tendencies with another's equally foul. Competing interests stabilized like immobile rams, their horns locked in battle. They balanced in federalism or triangulated in checks and balances, countering one another to create a stable foundation. Let men be evil so long as the law muzzles their wickedness structurally. If Tymon were alive today, he would of course concede the effectiveness of American institutions. Tymon would accept the U.S. Constitution, at least how it worked in its root conception. He would understand the truth in Killian's jurisprudential claims, unlike certain unnamed editors of major East Coast newspapers or Ivy League law reviews. Now, if only the other justices on the court would respect the text as written and stop projecting their ill-conceived personal desires onto the nation's foundational source of law. Thank you, Anton. As I'm sitting here listening to that, I, I couldn't help but uh, think about everything that's uh, going on here in the U.S. today with the uh, Supreme Court nomination and sort of the aftermath and some of the fallout from the recent presidential election. My last question today for you, Anton, is I, I'm curious to know uh, your observation. You were born in the U.S. You lived as a dual U.S.-Canadian citizen for a number of years. You live in Toronto. What's it been like from sort of a Canadian perspective looking over at what's going on here in the U.S. politically? It is pretty remarkable. Um, from a Canadian perspective, I think right now, especially with the, the Canadian government in a really pretty strong and stable place, there's a lot of relief <laughs> uh, among Canadians mm -hmm. that, um, that we're not going through the same tumult that is going on in the United States. I would say that one thing that, generally speaking, that I feel as a Canadian and watching the Canadian system handle problems and then the U.S. system handle problems is that um, the United States uh, has always had a much more dramatic story around it handles how it handles problems. So the tumult that we're seeing politically in the United States is really in, in a long history of how problems are solved in the United States. One thing that I really have always contrasted uh, with amazement is how the Canadian government handled the introduction of gay marriage in Canada um, compared to how it was handled and is still going on in the United States. Uh, and the Canadian government doing, and it, it involves the political structure of, of the Canadian government, the way that this, the Canadian Supreme Court has set up everything. Uh, it happened really very seamlessly. There was a majority government elected, a decision was made, and it just happened over the course of six months. There were a few cases that reached the Canadian Supreme Court, but since the Canadian Supreme Court isn't divided ideologically in anywhere near the same terms as the American Supreme Court, it was a, a, an issue that was resolved really relatively quickly. When you look at that same issue, and this happened back in maybe 2003, when you look at the same issue and how that played out in American courts and it's still going on, 
And this has to do with all the federalist problems that, and strengths that are happening in the United States and the ideological splits. It's a war, and it's been a battle, and it's an ongoing battle in American law. So the present crisis and problems that are happening in, in the U.S. government, I think, are are happening all throughout the American society. We all know that they're all happening throughout the American society. And there aren't those same fundamental extremes in Canadian society in, in any way. So it's a very striking difference. It certainly leads for uh, more drama in the United States than it does in Canada. That's interesting. Uh, we're running out of time here, but I do have one last question that sort of touches an observation or comment you had just made was, you said that uh, the Canadian Supreme Court isn't uh, divided ideologically uh, in the way that uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is. And I was just curious, uh, very quickly, Anton, for our non-Canadian listeners uh, who may not be overly familiar with the Canadian legal system or the Canadian Supreme Court, certainly. Can you explain a little bit your statement that um, there isn't sort of that ideological divide? Why, why do you think that is? Well, I'm no expert on Canadian law or Canadian Supreme Court, um, and I really get my information on that secondhand. It's not something that I've studied with any kind of detail. But I have, um, you know, I mentioned my friend uh, David, who did clerk for the Chief Justice of the Canadian Supreme Court, and I also have met some Canadian Supreme Court justices. And when I asked David that question, he said there really isn't a fundamental question around what is a constitution in Canada. Um, it's accepted on both conservative and liberal leanings that there is a kind of living common law constitution, if you will. So that main ideological drive, which is just kind of universally accepted in Canada, whereas in the United States, obviously there's, you know, with, you know, original intent and a kind of living view of proposing law. And there's all these kind of main ideological problems that happen in the United States. I don't know why. My guess is that there isn't a constitution in Canadian law, anything like the U.S. Constitution. There's a Charter of Rights and Freedoms that came up much later. Um, it's an outgrowth of the British system and uh, a common law system in Canada. So it hasn't had the same root history and the same constitutional questions or problems that have uh, faced the United States. Um, you know, and by the same argument, it also has lacked many of the strengths of the U.S. system uh, in its past. When you have a you know, when you have a pretty extreme system, you know, that's born from a kind of revolution and starting over, as it was in the United States, you get the best of the best and the worst of the worst. And Canada has always had more of a organic legal system, as far as I know. Again, I'm no expert. That's really um, from its outgrowth of the British system. Great. Well, I think we're going to have to leave that here right now. Anton, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a, a fascinating discussion. And to the listeners out there, once again, you have been listening to Anton Piedogorsky, who is the author of the fascinating new novel, Al Tunzi, about the lives of Supreme Court justices as they debate a case that heralds back to some of the George W. Bush years uh, with some of the legal battles with Guantanamo Bay. Thank you, Anton. Uh, it's been great having you on today. Thank you so much. And you can purchase Anton's book, Al Tunzi, uh, from Amazon.com or from the ABA website, shopaba.org, or at your local bookstore. I just want to extend a thank you to all of you listeners out there. Uh, this has been another edition of the ABA Modern Law Library. I'm John Malisak, and I look forward to presenting a new edition of this podcast next month. Have a good day.